thank you, uh, Moshe, for the introduction and the invitation. It's a, a great pleasure to be here. Uh, my first uh, visit to Oxford, and it's, it shows you, uh, it wasn't until the introduction that Moshe gave that it actually occurred to me that now I'm able to be in the place uh, without which uh, my public policy textbook wouldn't uh, exist. So uh, I uh, have uh, dealt with Oxford uh, uh, over the years electronically uh, and through their Canadian uh, subsidiary, uh, but now I can uh, uh, identify exactly uh, what happens uh, at the, uh, the headquarters of, uh, of that great work. Organization. Thank you all for coming out to hear about uh, transport uh, uh, futures uh, and the, the term uh, that uh, uh, Richard Gilbert and I um, coined for our, our jointly authored book, Transport Revolutions. Um, I, uh, I think that uh, we're in for uh, an interesting uh, decade uh, when it comes to uh, transport and change, and I hope that I'll be able to uh, walk you through some of the uh, dynamics and possible um, conceptual approaches to making the most out of those uh, uh, transport revolutions. So um, we've come out with uh, in, in the passenger uh, sector, which is uh, the area that I've done most of my work, um, we, we've come out of a, a long period where revolutionary change really has not been um, the norm. And one of the reasons we wanted to highlight this uh, uh, specific change of gears uh, in uh, the, the nature of uh, transport technology and organizational uh, uh, adaptation uh, into a more revolutionary mode is precisely because many professionals, many uh, students uh, uh, in the passenger side really have not had much experience dealing with disruptive, um, discontinuous, and uh, non-incremental change. Our colleagues, sometimes the, one in the same people, if they're really uh, smart and can deal with both freight and passenger, have more experience uh, because there really has been a logistics revolution uh, that has uh, uh, many of the characteristics of a transport, uh, all the characteristics really of a transport revolution. Um, so maybe our freight colleagues will be the ones to lead us forward more confidently uh, since they've been through it uh, 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 and still uh, are, are very good at it um, these days. We, the rest of us need to uh, improve our game, so to speak, uh, to deal with um, the uh, drivers uh, that come from climate and uh, uh, energy, and in particular oil-based uh, energy. And uh, although this is a talk about transport, I will uh, take you through um, the logic of uh, the oil story that I think is going to drive some of the biggest, uh, most disruptive changes uh, in our future um, at a, a rather simplified uh, level because uh, I'm not uh, a, a geologist or a petroleum uh, engineer, uh, but I think that uh, most of our transport uh, planners, designers, and technologists also have not spent a lot of detailed time thinking about the uh, implications of uh, a post-carbon uh, uh, mobility shift that begins with uh, what I call the end of the Beverly Hillbillies oil story. Now this for some of you will not make any sense. Uh, I don't know how well it travels across the Atlantic, but in the 1960s when the U.S. was trying to uh, uh, sort of uh, culturally uh, uh, um, embrace uh, modernity, there was a very popular television uh, show called the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, where a group of uh, uh, hillbillies uh, uh, accidentally discovered oil 
uh, while they were out hunting, I believe. They, they shot a hole in the ground by uh, missing the squirrel, and oil started gushing out uh, uh, instead. And this made them wealthy beyond their uh, wildest dreams. They moved to Beverly Hills and uh, had all sorts of interesting adventures with uh, the uh, uh, you know, sort of so-called sophisticated American entertainment culture. But the pretext, or maybe the subtext in all of this, which is important to think about because this is definitely uh, a key uh, uh, underpinning of American uh, culture, is that um, uh, the oil uh, uh, bounty that the US uh, had in the 20th century enabled uh, a standard of living and a, a level of affluence that was uh, beyond people's wildest uh, dreams uh, from just a generation or two before that. Uh, and, and that specifically uh, is, is visible and made a huge difference in the transport sector itself. The transport sector in the U.S. that existed uh, on coal and wood and other energy sources, including um, uh, um, animal power and uh, wind power with uh, sails and water power, um, was uh, quite different and led to uh, a very different uh, uh, sort of mode of living. Um, this, of course, applies with uh, appropriate adaptations beyond uh, North American borders. Uh, certainly applies to the UK and uh, and Western Europe um, and certain other parts of, of the uh, the world. But the oil behind this, I guess, the point uh, to go back to the uh, metaphor. The oil behind this was cheap and abundant and came out of the ground, uh, gushing under its own power by and large and. That oil um, is something that uh, is, is uh, uh, in uh, limited supply, let's say. Um, extracting conventional oil, the cost uh, in these days in the places where it is still most abundant, uh, like Saudi Arabia, uh, is in the range of four to five dollars per barrel. Uh, to uh, produce that, uh, that oil. You can get the good stuff out uh, without a lot of energy input as well. You don't have to start uh, uh, sinking other things uh, into the uh, uh, reservoirs to push out the uh, reluctant uh, bits that uh, are hiding uh, in there. You certainly don't have to do some of the extreme measures that I will touch on in a moment um, uh, in Canada where we're busy producing very unconventional oil. And again, it's an oversimplification, but I, I think uh, it's worth having some core principles. I remember in my first public policy course uh, at Harvard, a professor said that you should plan to do your policy briefings for an eighth grade uh, education level, not because political leaders are at an eighth grade level, but because they're constantly overloaded with uh, information and you need to get to the essence of key points and ideas to be able to uh, have uh, the uh, uh, leadership get the message uh, in ways they can use. And so one of the messages is that the uh, the cheap oil was like uh, a beverage that uh, some of you may have. Uh, I don't know how popular straws are here at Oxford, but you can just suck it up easily uh, uh, at your convenience. And um, we're, we're getting to the point where that oil is in decline uh, around the world, with the possible exception of the Middle East. Um, and more generally, a number of uh, uh, geologists uh, uh, who, uh, who debate you know, exactly when are saying that uh, uh, we are reaching the midpoint of the world's uh, petroleum endowment. Uh, that you know, the, uh, if all the petroleum that's out there, we've used you know in the range plus or minus a little uh, bit around half. 
But that gets translated into transport and indeed other policy uh, domains of energy as well. You know, we're at the midpoint. It's like uh, having your petrol gauge uh, coming up to the midpoint. You have half a, a tank of petrol left. You don't panic. You don't uh, abandon the car and you know sort of rush off uh, in search of other uh, options immediately. The the idea is well, you know, midpoint is uh, is a good time to start thinking about uh, planning our uh, future energy adjustments. But we uh, we have time, and the geological reality is that. Uh, this is a takeaway again, maybe oversimplified, that I would strongly urge you to work into your uh, own uh, thinking, that the first half and the second half of the world's oil endowment are physically different. It's not like we have a single uh, petrol tank uh, with all the world's oil waiting there for us to uh, take uh, and use when we're uh, ready for it. What we have is conventional oil, um, which is in depletion everywhere except uh, in the Middle East. Um, one of the world's most uh, geopolitically contested uh, spots and uh, uh, a lot of uncertainty about it uh, these days especially. Um, and the rest of the uh, places that uh, might have uh, uh, abundant supplies, like uh, my uh, uh, country, Canada, um, have it in a different form. There's some significant implications uh, from that, uh, 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 the fact that um, you need a different infrastructure. It's not like we're uh, able to use more of the same uh, refining, production, and transportation uh, infrastructure to just get the second half of the world. So we're going to be building uh, trillions of dollars, or we would need to build, to fully exploit uh, the second half of the world's oil uh, endowment. Trillions of dollars of unconventional oil production. An area in, uh, in northern Canada about the size of the state of Florida would need to be mined to completely exploit the uh, significant re proven reserves of unconventional oil in the so-called tar sands. The industry likes to call it oil sands because that sounds more uh, simpler to uh, extract, but it really is tar. It's bitumen that has to be steamed out of uh, the sands and uh, processed entirely differently than uh, conventional uh, crude oil and shipped uh, differently as well until it is upgraded into uh, conventional oil. So there's uh, quite a difference in this second half of the world's oil supply, and that's something that uh, is uh, lost, I think, in both the policy and uh, the public's uh, uh, understanding of, uh, of this issue. Um, it's also located in different places. Um, you know, some people uh, welcome climate change because they think it'll make it easier to get to the polar uh, oil reserves that are on the left, um, which are there, but again, very fragile and very expensive uh, uh, extraction. The deep water uh, oil uh, on the right uh, seemed to be a good bet uh, until uh, last year uh, when we had our first complete uh, uh, blowout of uh, uh, deep sea, uh, deep water uh, oil. And we learned the hard way uh, through trial and error that the same um, know-how, the same learning curve that had been applied to extracting offshore oil in the North Sea or in other places in shallower depths did not work. Um, the uh, containment, emergency management procedures were totally uh, 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 a failure uh, initially, and we sort of um, had the world's largest uh, trial and error learning experiment in how to put out uh, a major uh, deep water uh, oil uh, blowout uh, with uh, significant costs that are still uh, uh, being uh, coming uh, 
uh, to bear. I, I started, and and um, and this started some people thinking in the U.S. You know, the week or two after uh, that, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations all of a sudden came up with a symposium, uh, electronic symposium on can the U.S. you know save oil quickly and use less oil. And when they asked me to add my uh, input to that, I coined the phrase extreme oil. Uh, maybe uh, it's not, uh, the meaning isn't as popular or uh, won't connect here, but in the US there's, uh, on television, uh, uh, that's as close as I get to them, there are all these extreme sports that people do for the extra thrill and risk of it. And I think the same thing can be thought of much of the world's uh, remaining oil endowment. It's going to take extreme costs to get it. The risks are high and our knowledge level of how to deal with the environmental uh, consequences if things go wrong or to prevent them from going wrong is also low. We're at the beginning, in a way, of a second set of uh, investment, including knowledge curve, to uh, uh, safely and adequately exploit uh, the second half of the uh, world's oil endowment. And knowing that should change the entire calculus of how we um, anticipate our transport uh, uh, futures, which I'll get to uh, in, in due course. But let me just uh, continue, just in case uh, uh, you uh, uh, think that this is too simplified. Um, each of these countries um, uh, whose flags are up there have done studies about um, uh, the potential for significant global disruption uh, in the world's uh, uh, um, energy systems. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, the more dependent a country is on oil, uh, the the lower the uh, risk or the later the date at which they think the extreme disruptions are likely. So in the U.S., the official estimate is you know we won't get into a, a sort of a crisis mode uh, until 2030 or later. Um, the Swedes uh, um, have uh, at least tried uh, for a little while and then sort of backed off temporarily of of having a, a policy of having an oil-free uh, society, you know, not carbon-free, but uh, but not oil-based, uh, for um, security and uh, economic uh, uh, stability. Um, and both the German and UK uh, uh, governments, or different parts of them, uh, usually the military intelligence type uh, uh, organizations. Last year, in 2010, published reports suggesting that there were fairly high risks of major global disruption, uh, geopolitical and economic, sometime in this decade uh, uh, as a result of the challenges that come uh, in increased conflict, increased risk uh, of using and relying on this extreme oil uh, uh, for everything that we do. So uh, your crystal ball is as good as mine. I'm just picking a mid-range saying, you know, it could happen uh, uh, next year. It could happen in the next couple of years, but in my view, we are um, likely, by which I mean um, a more than 50% chance uh, of seeing some sort of major global disruption triggered, not just by climate or energy in general, but by an, an, a, a major oil shock. Uh, of one sort or another that is either coming from our inability to keep up with the supply of unconventional sources and or interconnected with the geopolitical uh, conflicts over um, the more conventional or accessible uh, sources that are that are out there. Um, and uh, that means that countries uh, and, and regions that are unprepared will be more at risk in their mobility systems than ones that are more prepared, uh, and, and uh, you know these are real pictures, but uh, uh, meant to 
uh, sort of uh, whimsically illustrate what, uh, what might happen. I sat uh, with an airline executive uh, recently and said, uh, you know, I asked him, well, you know, just as a short-term emergency measure, could you um, just, you know, wait till you get to the end of the runway to start up uh, aircraft? Uh, you know, um, airplanes use a lot of fuel on the ground just getting from the gate to their uh, takeoff, especially when they're fully loaded. And the answer I got was, again, suggesting that resilience and adaptability. Richard Branson talked about this a few years ago in the UK. He said, well, you know, we can make our Virgin Well, He has many fantasies about how to make Virgin Air sustainable. And uh, one of them was using biofuels and starving lots of people. Another one was um, uh, turning the planes off until they're actually at the end of the runway. And that actually sounded like a good idea to me until I talked to this aerospace engineer. He said, no, these planes are not designed to be pulled around uh, by tow trucks when they're fully loaded. Uh, you know, uh, you, you don't do that with a fully loaded plane uh, without starting to have leaks and other things uh, breaking down. So you'd have to re-engineer the airframe to do that. I mean, they, they're okay to be pulled empty, but when they're loaded with you and your luggage and the fuel that's needed, uh, it's not a quick fix. Uh, so uh, actually this picture is unrepresentative of uh, what might happen in the future. But a major energy crisis, I think every country needs to, uh, uh, every so, uh, part of society needs to think through this. And in my view, um, it, just about everywhere the, uh, in the uh, developed world, the answer uh, of whether you could get through a major energy uh, uh, shock uh, is uh, only if you've got mobility systems that are either ready or can be quickly ramped up that can perform without oil or with less oil. Um, uh, without oil doesn't mean oil free, it just means that parts of the system don't need as much oil or don't need any oil uh, uh, at all. And that's where we get back to the uh, theme of today's lecture. So you've had your little um, energy tour, at least from my uh, uh, perspective. Uh, happy to talk about that uh, afterwards, uh, but now we'll get to something I actually know more about, uh, and that's transport. Uh, and so transport revolutions are these uh, rapid and uh, disruptive changes, and I'll give you the definition in a moment, but they're also um, real changes in the system. And this is uh, an illustration of the kind of uh, tempting fantasy that is not a transport revolution. This is the world's first solar-powered aircraft, uh, which, as you see, was uh, developed by NASA. Um, the good news is that it uh, doesn't use any uh, oil and doesn't produce any greenhouse gases. The bad news is that it doesn't carry any people or any freight, and that it crashed after its third uh, test flight. So this is an example, and there's a subsequent one that people may know about in this room. There was actually a human-powered um, uh, solar flight uh, in Switzerland last uh, June, uh, just around the longest day of the year, which is not coincidental. This chap uh, was able to charge up his batteries flying around the Alps uh, all day and uh, then uh, continue overnight without uh, crashing because he had enough uh, solar energy. Uh, but uh, still, and, and the temperature in the cabin got down to minus 10 degrees because he didn't have enough um, energy to run the motors and heat the plane. Uh, so it's going to be a while before solar-powered aircraft are actually out there able to replace uh, any of the flights that uh, you might be planning uh, in the near future or even in the not-so-near future. This is an example of uh, a future technology that is entirely possible 
if we can get through the disruption of the coming decades transport revolutions. But it's actually counterproductive to embrace a technology that isn't ready for deployment at scale uh, uh, as a substitute for some of the hard but necessary policy and planning and technology uh, uses that will allow us to, as a society, continue to perfect and expand this type of uh, option. No one would like a, a solar-powered plane uh, more than me, because uh, I do a lot of flying. Um, and, and living where I do in Vancouver, it's a long way to many places uh, to uh, uh, be with people. So I hope it will happen. But if you bet on that uh, before it's ready, you're taking a very high uh, gamble uh, as to whether there will be uh, uh, the ability to advance these kinds of technologies in an economy and a society that is uh, stable and, and thriving. So what is a transport revolution? The kind that we uh, have profiled, we have five examples in our book, and there's many more. Well, there's more that you could find, uh, uh, at least a couple of them in the book. Uh, the uh, arrival of the steam railway uh, between Liverpool and Manchester, and the great change in transatlantic travel in the 1950s from sea to air. Both uh, The UK features in, uh, highly in both of them. These are uh, the definitions. It's a major change that happens in less than 25 years, uh, often less than a decade sometimes less than five years, and a 50% increase or decrease in the level of activity that uh, is going on um, to use either new technology or uh, a brand new form of organization, or often both, and something that affects uh, at least 10% of the society's population, so that some of the niche technologies like the uh, Segway, I don't know if that's made it uh, over here, uh, but you see uh, people uh, tooling around on them, usually in uh, tourist-type destinations, uh, they've rented them, it's uh, not going to be qualified as a, a transport uh, revolution. Um, these, again, uh, we do this to distinguish, not to say that it's better or worse, to distinguish this from the kind of incremental change which the automobile uh, for the last century has experienced. I mean, automobiles today are much different than the ones that first came out, but the changes have been incremental um, and not disruptive. The, the basic propulsion system, the fuel used, uh, and the uh, chassis, uh, the four wheels, etc., are all pretty much the same. The, the size and shape of the uh, uh, roads that they use uh, uh, are not that different as well. They've changed incrementally uh, along the way. Um, so that's what we want to differentiate. It's not, uh, there's two modes of change and we think it's important to understand the dynamics and the issues involved in the revolutionary disruptive mode of uh, change for better planning and policy associated uh, with it. And um, this is why uh, it's especially important to do that, to understand those distinctions in the transport sector. Uh, because I would say that transport is a leading edge uh, uh, expo exposure, uh, has a leading edge exposure to change uh, as opposed to a lagging. And this goes against some economic uh, thinking, I would say, where transport is typically taught uh, initially to uh, uh, economic students as a derived demand. The uh, uh, basic uh, premise behind that is, well, transport is uh, a means to an end, not an end in itself, which I fully uh, embrace and agree with. And, but the corollary of that is that, well, whatever the ends are, as they evolve, transport will follow and sort of uh, shift to, to you know, meet those ends uh, one way or another. And this is why it's not going to work out that way with uh, the energy uh, challenges and climate uh, change issues that we face. We've designed a global transportation system that uh, is in almost entirely dependent on 
one form of petroleum fuel or another. I will make a prediction here uh, today, uh, which uh, I think is, should be self-evident, uh, and that is that we have reached the high tide mark of the amount of a share of our transportation system that is powered by oil. The only thing you can know for sure today is that we're not going to be building more new uh, transportation technologies that depend on oil uh, for their fuel source. But I think another piece of uh, uh, relevant uh, uh, orientation to take from this uh, uh, current share is that uh, it's going to be uh, the first uh, and uh, maybe the most uh, challenge to try and reduce that share as the uh, world's uh, energy transitions from oil move uh, forward. Um, here is the global, uh, it may, maybe it didn't come as a surprise to you that transport uses uh, a lot of oil, um, but maybe it would come as more of a surprise to recognize that more than half, substantially more than half of the world's oil consumption goes through transportation uh, 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 sector. Um, motors of one sort or another using oil are 56% are globally according to the International Energy Agency and of course in highly uh, motorized countries like the United States uh, it's uh, well over uh, uh, 60% to, uh, and, and uh, in the two-thirds range. Um, there are, there are many uses for petroleum um, that will compete with uh, mobility uh, going forward. Uh, I won't point to all of them, but uh, feedstocks, the little green slice of the, uh, the pie, um, is uh, uh, an important one to keep in mind. Um, most of our um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, products, medical uh, drugs uh, that are out there, have as a, a feedstock uh, petroleum, uh, uh, and so uh, anyone who took uh, an antihistamine or uh, an allergy pill or something uh, today or is on any other kind of medication might uh, think that, well, there's, that's an essential use of, uh, of oil to uh, have uh, medicines and vaccines uh, available. And if we get into a situation uh, of constrained supply, uh, I would think uh, that uh, we're going to see higher and better uses for some parts of the world's oil consumption, such as the feedstocks, uh, which not only uh, keep us healthy, but also are key ingredients to our food supply in terms of fertilizers, pesticides, not all of which uh, are good for us, but uh, at the moment are what stands between, uh, for now, uh, between uh, uh, avoiding mass starvation in large parts of, uh, of the world. So um, when I give this talk to uh, high school students or younger uh, audiences, I just say, well, you know, what would you do? Take away all of the numbers and all of the labels, and if someone just showed you that pie chart and said, we need to conserve, where would you start? Um, they, would, they, they get it uh, intuitively. They say, well, the biggest piece, there's got to be the most room for um, efficiency where you're consuming the most. And I think there's something to that. Uh, so I'm actually more of an optimist. Some people who go down the uh, road of looking at transport and sustainability come away very gloomy and pessimistic and write books uh, that say we're heading for uh, imminent and total collapse. And I can give you some titles if you uh, are... are need some, um, you know, sort of depressive uh, reading. Uh, but I tend to feel that uh, actually, uh, because we waste so much energy in our, oil uh, en uh, energy in our transportation system, that's actually a silver lining in a way. We have a lot of room to work with because we are wasting. Um, and the more uh, mobile the country is, usually the more that's being wasted. So how do we shift away from that? I don't know if I can stop this. See if that helps. How do we shift away 
from uh, that huge waste? Uh, well, there's three paths that we lay out in the book. Again, um, none of which are um, particularly uh, uh, unintuitive. Un, uh, um, and they involve uh, the propulsion system, switching from internal combustion to electric uh, motors. They involve using um, inherently more energy efficient mobility modes, which in uh, our rail and at least at conventional slower speeds, waterborne transportation. And uh, at taking a page from the logistics uh, uh, history, trying to uh, use more um, collectively managed, which doesn't necessarily mean publicly owned. It just means that, I mean, air airlines are now very good at filling seats through uh, yield management, much better than uh, private pilots or individual drivers are at filling these spaces in their cars or vehicles. Um, so uh, those are the three paths toward a uh, post-carbon future. And let me begin with the electric uh, mobility uh, piece of it. Um, it's very important to, to recognize that electricity isn't a panacea, but it is the equivalent, I suppose, of uh, an open source uh, code for our uh, finding our program for sustainability and transportation. And by that I mean electricity isn't an energy source, it's an energy carrier. It allows you to uh, take other energy sources and blend them together into a common infrastructure and get that uh, into electric motors, which are inherently three to four times more efficient than internal combustion engines. So if you're like me, and I imagine most of you, uh, you like the kinds of energy sources that are pictured uh, up there. And by having an electric mobility system, even if we don't have enough of those now, we open the door to being able to incrementally add those into our electric uh, grid and production system without changing anything at the user end once we've got the electric mobility in place. You can't do that with any of the other proposed options for supposedly sustainable mobility. If we go to a hydrogen-based uh, 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 transportation fuel, that can only work in an infrastructure and with propulsion systems that are set up to use hydrogen. Uh, if we decide to go for biofuels, it can only work in a parallel infrastructure that is designed and set up to use those fuels. If you try and run a, an engine that's uh, designed for biofuels with hydrogen, you will get a big explosion. But if you take all of those energy sources and use them to generate electricity, you can run those through a grid and the motor at the other end of your vehicle will not care where the electrons came from, it will just use them to provide propulsion. So if we have to make a change, which I think we all uh, will agree sooner or later is essential, hopefully sooner. My suggestion is to make it once to electric uh, infrastructure for our mobility so that we can eventually move away from the non-renewable um, sources and add those renewable ones uh, in. It also happens to fit rather well with government uh, usual appetite for major uh, policy shifts, which is to try and work incrementally. Rather than trying to change the entire system over to hydrogen or the entire system over to biofuel, do it one plant at a time. Um, and uh, each time we can close a coal plant or a nuclear station and replace it with a renewable uh, energy source, governments can claim credit and they can handle those sorts of steps. As much as I think a transport revolution is a challenge, I would imagine that an energy revolution is an even bigger risk and challenge for uh, at least uh, Western societies. And so my advice is don't try and have a transport revolution and an energy revolution at the same time. 
do the transport revolution and leave the energy uh, evolution to a more incremental uh, model. Now obviously that means more of a challenge for some parts of our transport system than others. Um, the ones that, uh, such as uh, uh, long distance trucks, uh, which are much more prevalent in North America, but I think in Europe as well, and aviation really are not uh, going to be amenable to uh, uh, alternative energy at scale in the near future. So um, we're going to need to do even better with the modes that are so that uh, at least for um, long haul aviation, we have uh, the capability to continue that uh, system going forward. Um, it's going to continue, but it's not going to be a, uh, a great bargain, uh, which uh, we may have internalized in our values and our culture, uh, uh, and, and we're going to have to be ready for that. Um, there is new technology out there, although as you may have seen, it uh, takes longer to deploy and has um, some challenges. Uh, you know, um, uh, another UK company, uh, uh, Trent, uh, Rolls-Royce engines, uh, which are the lightest and most uh, uh, fuel-efficient uh, power for the new double-deck uh, Airbus 380, pushed the envelope just a little bit too far, as you may remember when that uh, engine on a Qantas plane exploded uh, climbing out of Singapore several months ago. The in initial investigations and assessment are that the uh, composite materials, uh, the lightweight uh, 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 components to the engine just couldn't take the stress uh, uh, quite as well as they'd hoped uh, it, they would. And um, that comes, and why did that one happen and not uh, the uh, other supplier? I can't remember whether it's Pratt & Whitney or uh, another company that's uh, supplying engines to the uh, plane well. They were um, less innovative and hadn't put in as many new materials. But uh, um, these are the challenges that come with deploying technology. And the furthest you can go uh, that's at all feasible on the aerospace design boards right now is this type of aircraft, um, which is uh, the blended wing body. It's, uh, it's used uh, for military aircraft. Uh, there the uh, idea of saving fuel is not the main uh, attribute. It's that if you uh, code it the right way, it becomes invisible to uh, enemy uh, radar. And um, that's why we have blended wing uh, stealth uh, fighter aircraft. Um, can that be scaled into a commercial civilian transport? Uh, yes. Um, this, uh, this plane uh, uh, is not in the uh, sort of solar power category. It is doable. Uh, it's going to be a lot different uh, uh, experience than uh, flying is today in our tube-like uh, planes. The uh, aircraft interior will probably be much closer to this room. It'll be very wide. Window seats will be at a great premium. If you really like to sit by the window, there's not going to be as many of those. And I hope that they will put in many more rows to get to the uh, toilets uh, on these planes. Because if it's 25 across seating and you're stuck in the middle, uh, it could be uh, uh, less, less uh, pleasant uh, than uh, flying is today. But the best that these can uh, do, uh, in our estimate, uh, is to maybe have a 50% uh, fuel economy increase over the 787 or the latest uh, current uh, generation of uh, uh, sort of fuel saving planes. That's enough to keep uh, flying going. It's not enough to keep cheap flying going. Um, we've got uh, a, an aviation business model which has been celebrated in business schools um, and in tourism programs all over the world, the so-called low-cost carriers, some of which are uh, very popular and uh, uh, central to the UK's uh, air transportation system, the Ryanairs, the EasyJets uh, of the world. Um, and what they've done is shown that you can get a lot of people to fill cheap seats on uh, planes um, uh, if you uh, keep the price 
um, very low. Uh, uh, Two-thirds of air tra traffic, uh, airline uh, passenger traffic, is discretionary. That means that uh, people uh, are making the trip as a, an optional uh, purpose. It's not a, a mandatory trip. It's not a family emergency or a business meeting that you have to get to. Um, and this is the price-sensitive part of the market. When we've had sort of um, oil price increases, uh, we've seen, and fare increases that go along with it, that it's the discretionary market that uh, uh, is reduced uh, first. Um, it's a, a, a very rough guesstimate, but Richard Gilbert and I uh, have um, sort of concluded that about half of that market will disappear as airfares rise, uh, driven by fuel prices. Fuel is now the single largest cost item for most uh, air carriers. It used to be labor. They found a way to squeeze productivity and wages uh, in the uh, uh, people working uh, in, uh, on, on board and behind the scenes, but fuel has uh, then gone ahead of it. So um, business models for low-cost carriers will have to change. Um, we're, we're the end of cheap flying, as opposed to the end of flying, is something they're going to have to uh, adapt uh, to. And I think that um, when you look at uh, the kinds of smaller aircraft, uh, 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 that uh, small and medium-sized aircraft that um, uh, low-cost carriers tend to prefer, and that if they built their uh, their markets with frequent flights uh, uh, over short to medium distances, those are the things that uh, clog up a lot of airspace uh, and uh, major airport uh, capacity. Um, but uh, these so-called buses with wings, which is at least the way North Americans refer to the uh, cheaper uh, airlines, are going to be uh, replaced uh, by uh, real buses and trains and perhaps by electric uh, cars uh, on a cost basis. Uh, that will become the low-cost way of, uh, of traveling. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention at least one other technology that uh, is uh, uh, available that uh, I think has at least potential to, uh, to come back. The dirigibles got a bad name uh, after the uh, Hindenburg disaster, the sort of first major transportation catastrophe that was uh, recorded live and uh, then played endlessly for horrified people to watch over many generations. I mean, most people, if you say dirigible, what the image that comes to mind is the Hindenburg going up in flames and uh, a terrible uh, disaster uh, with it. Well, the hydrogen part is gone. And uh, the Zeppelin company, which made the Hindenburg, is back in business, and it produces dirigibles now, like this one, which are used mainly for uh, tourism uh, purposes. But um, unlike a blimp, the whole point of a dirigible is it has an internal uh, structure that gives it a lot of capacity for both cargo and uh, passengers. And uh, in certain places, uh, uh, such as uh, crossing uh, uh, between uh, the UK and parts of Europe that are not on the uh, Channel Tunnel uh, Rail route, um, maybe Northern Europe, or maybe over to Ireland or something like that. Dirigibles, uh, uh, which could be solar powered, uh, but could uh, certainly sooner than the solar powered aircraft will be available, because they have a huge surface uh, and can collect lots of uh, uh, sun and uh, don't need to worry about lift uh, because the helium provides that. Um, and also in freight. There is a huge market. It will come first in freight before it does for passengers, at least over longer distances. A dirigible that uh, leaves the uh, east coast of China going to the west coast of North America uh, would take about uh, three days uh, to get there. 
there is a huge amount of potential uh, cargo that uh, is uh, uh, amenable to being sped up to three days without the cost, uh, the huge cost uh, increase of going from ship to fixed wing air freight uh, out there. So I think that's where the, the initial uh, market capabilities of this niche could arise, and then there will be other ones that uh, come as production and use of dirigibles uh, grows. Um, but we also shouldn't forget about the waterborne, uh, and this is uh, cargo uh, traffic uh, through uh, UK ports. Um, the UK is relatively well positioned, uh, as it was historically, to be a marine transportation uh, leader. Um, those will also uh, uh, sort of shift um, uh, uh, with um, higher energy uh, prices. Um, a lot of people, again, who write this sort of dark, uh, pessimistic views of uh, an energy collapse and a transportation collapse leading to the end of uh, civilization as we know it, uh, make the assumption, which I think is incorrect, that uh, globalization will be ended by uh, uh, the end of cheap oil and the end of uh, uh, flying everywhere all the time. And in particular, they make the leap that cargo, uh, including marine cargo, will be unaffordable so we won't ship it uh, 10,000 kilometers, but um, already um, marine uh, transportation, if you do it at uh, a slow speed, and the major uh, marine uh, carriers have actually slowed down their ships over the last four to five years, um, which uh, works well in the supply chain as long as you put the extra inventory in. It's, it's a higher cost for the uh, 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 shippers, in a sense, because you need more you know, sort of uh, containers full of things from China if you slow everything down by four or five days to get there. But uh, if that cost is less than the extra cost of running the ships at a higher speed, it makes sense. And that's what's been happening to probably uh, half of the things that you're buying that are imported from Asia are moving at a slower speed now. And then we've got uh, the ability to go even more energy efficient with wind power. Google uh, sky sails when you uh, get home tonight, or maybe right now if you have Wi-Fi, and you will see that there is a company in Hamburg, and this is actual, this is being uh, deployed now on the North Sea uh, and in other select uh, uh, areas to uh, uh, double the fuel efficiency, well, 50%, I would say, is a, uh, a likely um, average uh, of marine uh, transportation. So in my view, I think it's too uh, bleak or uh, uh, unnecessary to assume that uh, globalization is done for uh, with uh, the climate and energy challenges that face the transport sector. It's entirely possible that uh, we could have geopolitical conflicts over energy or climate or both that would derail globalization. But it won't happen because it's too, we, we've run out of affordable ways to move stuff around the world. Whether you think that's good or bad, um, it's important to recognize that uh, we can move stuff very cheaply uh, over water, and we will continue to be able to do so. Um, so globalization uh, will not be uh, ended by that constraint, uh, although maybe others uh, along the way. Also in uh, Europe in particular, uh, but also in China, Electric rail offers inland uh, mobility for a goods uh, movement uh, that's proven mature technology. I was even able to find, although I'm told it's very rare, uh, an English uh, example. This is near Manchester of a goods train being pulled by an electric uh, locomotive. You have the capability to do that, which we don't in North America, and that uh, will be a significant uh, issue for our goods movement uh, system, but less so for Europe. That electric rail infrastructure uh, uh, has uh, a lot of um, 
potential uh, capability built into it that uh, is currently, uh, let's say, underused. Of course, I don't need to uh, tell some of the uh, experts in this room, uh, leading researchers in high-speed rail uh, research, uh, David and Moshe in particular, much about this, but for the rest of you, um, I think that qualifies as a transport uh, revolution in Japan first uh, in 1964, uh, and uh, in Europe uh, in the 80s and 90s, and now coming back uh, uh, even more um, to uh, uh, China. Uh, but before we get into uh, some of the implications of this uh, uh, for future transport uh, uh, capability in an era of expensive oil, it's worth just um, mentioning, maybe it's not uh, as relevant in, in the European context, but in the US um, I hear many speeches from many uh, uh, researchers and policy leaders uh, about how important safety is in the transportation um, system. And, Sometimes I'm tempted to say uh, unpleasant or unpolite things uh, about that uh, because if it really were true, you would think that a mode of transportation that has a zero, zero fatality rate after moving trillions of people, uh, passenger kilometers since 1964, would have gotten a higher priority in the transport system, and it hasn't. So I'm not sure what that says about people's uh, continuous embrace of safety rhetoric, uh, if it uh, uh, has this huge blind spot. And what it says to me is that there's some institutional uh, challenges that people don't even think about uh, the rail option. But we will think about it uh, more, uh, and we are starting to in North America, as will you um, in, uh, in England. Uh, you've got one piece of high-speed rail uh, infrastructure, and uh, although it has its issues, um, it's seen, I think, to be uh, largely quite a success. It certainly transformed uh, the uh, area around St. Pancras in London uh, as an urban um, stimulus, but it's also transformed mobility, uh, including air travel between um, uh, the UK and, and Paris at least. Um, and uh, you'll be looking for more of it, uh, which I'll get to uh, uh, later. But I think the real game changer, as I alluded to, is China. Um, China is uh, on track, if you'll pardon the pun, to double the world's high-speed rail capability. Um, they're going to, within five years, have more high-speed rail services than all of Europe, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, everyone else put together, unless there's some massive explosion of high-speed rail construction. Um, I reviewed a paper, uh, which I hope will be in print uh, soon this year, uh, that gave a, a detailed profile of the manufacturing uh, center that they've put together in Qingdao. I believe it's the same place that the beer is named after. There's a factory with 7,000 people uh, working two shifts. Uh, and when I first started talking about it, because it wasn't mentioned in the paper, I said, well, that proves they even have more capacity uh, because uh, they've got uh, room for another shift. And then someone from China pointed out that in China, the shifts are 12 hours. So that means they're working at full capacity. But the main point uh, is that uh, they turn out a full high-speed train set, locomotive, coaches, uh, uh, every second day. They're building a train every second day right now. And that's going to... Um, mean that their system will be uh, fully uh, uh, equipped uh, when it's uh, doubling the world's total capacity. But it also tells me that um, just like uh, with computers, laptops, flat panel televisions, uh, um, there's a, a term that economists use, they call it the China effect. And uh, I hadn't heard about it until I started giving this talk. Eventually, an economist came up to me and said, well, you know, this is the China effect for high-speed. Once China becomes the dominant producer of whatever X product, uh, 
the price drops by double digits. Um, they are capable of tipping the uh, production function in the market so that even the competitors, the ones that stay in business, will be able to drop their costs of uh, production or they won't survive uh, in it. So nowadays, you know, you may get laptops from other places or flat panel televisions or footwear or other uh, key China product, uh, China price products, but the price is now the China price. What will the China price be? Um, I'm willing to say it'll be half of what uh, a conventionally built uh, high-speed train is because they're, the, the way in which they're sort of handcrafted in uh, France and Germany and the places they've been built is very much like, you know, a Mercedes or a, a Porsche-type uh, sports vehicle is put together. High quality, high, um, you know, skilled labor, uh, very good uh, product. But the Chinese uh, usually, if this follows their pattern, are able to produce something that may not be quite as high quality, uh, but will be significantly less in price. Now, people point out, well, the equipment is only part of the uh, high-speed rail uh, cost uh, function. You know, the infrastructure is quite significant as well. But we shouldn't discount the fact that uh, having cheap uh, vehicles will, will uh, make it easier, in a sense, to uh, expand the uh, electric mobility uh, uh, in high-speed rail systems. So there may actually be an advantage of backwardness here. Just like you know, not being the first person on your block to get the flat panel television might have saved you quite a lot of money compared to whoever you know, paid full price for it, or not being the first one to get the sort of mini laptop uh, that could fit light, uh, have the lightest weight batteries and everything. I think we'll be in a, the UK and even more uh, the US and Canada will at least get the price benefits of being a laggard in deployment of uh, high-speed rail technology. I guarantee you that whatever high-speed two trains are uh, deployed will cost less than the uh, Eurostar uh, equipment that went for the first uh, high-speed uh, link in, uh, in this country. And this one comes from The Independent, uh, I believe. Uh, no, The Daily Telegraph, excuse me. This was last year, and the Chinese sort of dropped this uh, casually in a rail conference in, uh, in London, that they're working on plans, just plans, um, for extending their high-speed uh, service through uh, Asia to get to London. Uh, and that their working hypothesis is that with their newest train, they will be able to do that run in two days two days from London to Beijing by train. And when you think about it, that's uh, functionally about, it's actually four times the uh, speed of a, of a flight, but it's functionally double because when you think of all the time you spend preparing, getting to an airport uh, and uh, getting uh, away from the airport at the other end, you're basically losing a day to go from here to China. So you're basically doubling that uh, with uh, a high-speed uh, train option. And the conditions of that travel, although no one knows yet what they would be, um, are quite likely to be less um, draining and stressful than the uh, conditions of that flight from here to, uh, to China. I've never flown from here to China, so I don't know, but maybe some of you can uh, speak to that. Uh, um, I think that uh, the Chinese have decided, at least in conceptual terms, that if their growing middle class ever wants to see um, Oxford or uh, Canterbury or the Vatican or uh, the Eiffel Tower, that they're going to get there by train uh, in a post-carbon uh, future and that they can't, uh, they, they don't want to leave um, no option for their population to have connections with uh, Europe uh, in the future. Of course, this will all be uh, electric uh, uh, along the way. And um, just to, in case it seems inconceivable that, uh, you know, the speed to get here in two days from Beijing, the Chinese uh, earlier uh, 
well, at the end of December, announced their schedule for the new uh, service from Beijing to Shanghai. And unfortunately, I should have taken the time to figure out a European analog. But, but a US uh, distance analog to that is New York to Chicago. They're going to operate that service regularly scheduled uh, when it's uh, fully uh, functioning in four hours. Four hours uh, from uh, covering a distance that uh, uh, is about two hours to fly uh, New York to Chicago. I don't know what that would be in European terms, but go and find out what uh, Beijing to Shanghai distance is and think about, you know, you probably get to Rome or maybe further uh, in uh, four hours uh, for London. So that's the, the level that they're working uh, toward. Well, I've given you a, a sort of a, a tour of what might happen with energy, what, what some of the key um, implications for transport uh, options are, but I, I want to switch from the what uh, to the how uh, and uh, talk about uh, the, the sort of uh, three dimensions uh, that uh, are necessary, in my view, um, when one confronts uh, and, and tries to make the most of transport uh, revolutions. And uh, those involve priorities, skill sets, and policy. So we'll start with the priorities. Um, and this is uh, a, a comment from an American humorist uh, many uh, decades ago that may, again, not resonate as well here, but it's still used as a metaphor in America. Will Rogers once said, if you're in a hole and you want to get out, the first thing you have to do is stop digging. And what that means in uh, our um, transportation planning is that we have to pretty much um, hit the pause button at a minimum on plans for carbon-based, increasing uh, use of carbon-based uh, mobility. So, um, and that, that involves uh, uh, motor vehicles and uh, aircraft, most uh, importantly. And the UK is uh, maybe the first place who's actually done that. Um, that uh, is uh, an example of not digging. Um, you know, the billions uh, that will uh, would have gone into the uh, Heathrow Third Runway are maybe Maybe they weren't there to begin with, with the fiscal situation in this country, but the debt anyway won't be there to try and uh, do that, and presumably could be used for other options. Um, and that's where um, uh, we, we, so you've had an example, I don't need to teach you, you need to teach other people about how to stop digging uh, and planning for um, infrastructure investments that will be obsolete before they are uh, fully finished, in my view. Um, but I, I think there's a new balance of know-how that's needed uh, as, uh, as well. Um, and that includes planners, it includes designers, it includes engineers. And there's a lot of uh, practice and uh, people still being produced, uh, I'm sure, right on this campus who know how to design airports, who know how to build uh, pavement structures, bridges that are designed for motor vehicles uh, out there. Um, but there is a gap. Um, uh, at least in uh, Western Europe and uh, North America, there is a much smaller number of people who know how to develop and uh, apply and build the infrastructure for electric mobility. Even the kind that's mature, that's like rail transportation, let alone the electric vehicles uh, that might be uh, uh, independent, uh, uh, although there's a little bit of it. Uh, so in, a, in an ideal uh, world, in a, a logical uh, uh, situation, you would start planning the human uh, capital side of this, uh, you know, years ahead of when you actually need these people uh, out there. We may have passed that point in time, but we're going to need a, a crash course uh, for uh, people, uh, uh, for electrical engineers to work on mobility applications rather than um, just uh, IT and uh, uh, some of those areas, which I think is where most uh, electrical engineers wind up. Uh, uh, with the market uh, these days. The UK has a little bit of uh, a, um, uh, 
uh, a niche in this area in terms of goods vehicles. Uh, for whatever reason, Richard, my co-author, claims it was uh, in London there was a, either an art ordinance or some sort of uh, cultural preference to have the milk delivered uh, quietly in the morning. So uh, London's milk trucks uh, through you know the, most of the 20th century were electric. And uh, the UK had these electric uh, companies, uh, like uh, this one, whose name isn't in, in front of me at the moment, but um, building these electric vehicles. And they've been resurrected. This is the one on the right is also uh, Smith Electric Vehicles, which is another UK company. It's got a bit of a niche uh, in, uh, in this. So there is um, some experience. I guess my advice is, uh, you know, Build on your experience where you have it, where we have people who know how to use electric technology in transportation. Uh, it's a good place to start because uh, they're going to have to expand and teach other people probably in a less formal setting if there's time is of the essence than you know, sending people to uh, uh, university courses for years at a time. The other thing that will likely happen is that we will import, uh, and by we I mean both the UK and North America, um, when the New York City Transit Authority, which is North America's largest electric mobility operator running the subways in New York, had to find a new uh, chief of traction, which is the electric propulsion system, a person to manage 700 plus miles of subway electric uh, infrastructure, they had a, an open recruitment and they wound up hiring someone from India because there wasn't anyone who had that much experience with a large organization running electric-powered uh, trains uh, that they could find uh, who was willing to relocate to New York. So they got uh, someone who worked on either the uh, Indian Railways or one of the major uh, regional transit systems in one of their big cities. And there are a lot of people uh, being trained in China and India in uh, electric mobility. And we will um, be importing, hopefully, uh, some of them to help us out, at least uh, if this transition moves quickly uh, along the way. So that's the skills part. It's great to plan to build that human capacity here, but it's also good to be open-minded about uh, importing people who know what they're doing. The next uh, step uh, is about planning. And uh, the idea that we uh, should build a transportation plan that's based around projected demand or behavioral assumptions that are likely obsolete when, as and when, an energy shock hits, sooner or later, hopefully sooner, we will move beyond and develop a, a transportation plan whose first uh, uh, guiding principle is to gauge the mobility uh, in relation to the available resources to power that uh, mobility. And that's what Richard and I have called an energy-first uh, transportation plan. These are the five steps which are laid out uh, in the book to uh, do it. Um, and it's pretty simple, uh, at least conceptually. First, you have to figure out how much you are going to reduce your liquid petroleum fuel use. And that's not trivial. Is it half a percent a year, one percent a year, two percent a year? between the start and the end of the plan. How long do you set the plan? Is it 10 years, 15 years, 50 years um, in duration? We picked uh, a 25-year uh, plan because it fits with our definition of a transport revolution. And we also felt it was um, timely enough so that people would actually do it. If you have a, uh, some cities in North America are having these 100-year visioning exercises, which open up creative thinking but I think uh, are short on implementation possibilities. Because when people think about 100 years, they hear, well, that's my kids will actually do the work, and I don't need to do anything uh, on it now. You need to have a time frame where people realize the time to act is uh, as soon as they've got the plan. Estimating current activity and energy use in transport is probably the easiest uh, part, at least in many countries. There's very good data 
especially because governments collect a lot of uh, taxes on motor fuels and petroleum, so uh, they keep close track of how much of it's used and how it's used. Um, and since 95% of the mobility is powered by petroleum, that's uh, relatively easy. The third step, as I've shown you with a few uh, little examples, we have others in the book uh, besides dirigibles, is a little predicting future technology. Uh, we know the mature technologies that can be scaled up, uh, mainly rail, but also electric uh, vehicles have uh, a future um, uh, on roads, dirigibles. There may be others. Uh, some uh, may see personal rapid transit as a high possibility in the future. Others uh, are more uh, cautious about that. So that's a challenge to try and do that and figure out even more of a challenge to figure out, well, what would a dirigible actually use for energy uh, in the future if it was carrying large amounts of people or goods? Um, uh, there's a lot of guesstimation. Uh, but once you've made your bets uh, on that, uh, then you have to balance and develop a strategy for deploying the future modes that meet your uh, desired level of activity and your desired uh, availability of, uh, of energy that's out there. And the fifth step, is to try and continuously refine and improve both the uh, energy estimates and the proposed activity uh, uh, once you have this sort of sketch planning done in the first uh, instance. And I will show you in our book, we looked at two cases uh, to try and just illustrate this. These are not forecasts, these are not models, these are scenarios really um, to help people think about how to use an energy first uh, approach to transport planning. We looked at China and the United States because we felt that those were the two places where we would absolutely have to get it right with the climate and energy shifts in transportation. Doesn't matter what Canada, the UK, Sweden, Switzerland do, if we all get it right and the US and China don't, uh, we're in big, still in big trouble because they are just such big users of energy, such big producers of greenhouse gases that they have to get it right. So that's why we picked those two. And here is an example, um, just we did freight and goods and uh, people in both cases in this scenario plan. This is one fourth of that exercise, the others uh, are available. Um, and one point I will make, uh, which usually at least one brave soul uh, takes me up on, um, in the open source tradition of electric mobility, the uh, spreadsheets that uh, Richard and I used to uh, come up with these scenarios, including the energy estimates that we think are, uh, well, the actual data from 2007, which is all real, and the estimates to calculate the 2025 uh, scenario, we will make those available to anyone who sends me an email uh, on it. And we want you to go out and plan your own uh, energy first scenarios for wherever you think it's, uh, whatever scale or location. Feel free to uh, uh, borrow and improve upon it and tell us uh, what, you, what revolutions you come up with. So this is, the goal in our case was not to scare people in the US by saying you're gonna have to cut mobility in half. We wanted to have comparable levels of passenger and freight mobility to what exists today with uh, a room for population growth. So it's not even a hidden sort of shrinkage by saying we'll just flatline it. Um, in China it's a little easier because they have their population under control. Kind of hard for me to believe as someone who grew up in you know the 60s when you know third world overpopulation was going to uh, end life as we knew it uh, that China actually has its population under control and the United States doesn't but uh, there you go uh, you know uh, the US is is on a fairly steep uh, for a developed country I think it may be the steepest population increase uh, in the world in China we could stick with existing levels of mobility but anyway 
So let's just quickly um, cover a few high points of this. Uh, we wanted to show how it could be done, which involves quite a lot of shift to other modes to be able to keep the level of mobility. This illustrates the point that I made before, that because so much energy is wasted in the current configuration of US passenger travel, there is room to move everyone, but differently, with uh, uh, using 40% less oil between now and 2025. So in 2007, there were 7.7 .7 trillion passenger kilometers by personal vehicle. And in 2007, the hybrid was just a little speck. So it's almost all 99.9% oil-based internal combustion engine. Um, this was the um, fuel use fleet-wide, uh, 2.6 uh, megajoules per passenger kilometer. I'm so glad that I'm in an audience that uses metric because in the US, people don't know what a kilometer is, they don't know what a megajoule is. They're still using British thermal units, and I tell them the British don't use them anymore, so maybe it's time to think about megajoules. Um, anyway, um, and this was in gigajoules, the total um, uh, liquid fuel use, excuse me, exajoules, um, which is an even bigger amount. Uh, 20.4 exajoules for moving those 7.7 uh, trillion passenger kilometers. Those are real numbers, uh, and the spreadsheet has all the sources, uh, and the book does too, as to where they're from. What would it take to uh, uh, shift to using 40% less oil in uh, 2025? Well, um, you see that there's now a total of 4.3 trillion in total, these two columns in purple of passenger uh, uh, travel in personal vehicles in, in oil-powered internal combustion. So, um, you know, uh, uh, we, we've split it because we think in the future there's going to be a differentiation of the universal car that can drive uh, sort of from here to uh, Cape Town or wherever the furthest you can get uh, uh, after you get out of the uh, Channel Tunnel. Is, uh, is, is a thing of the past. We will have much more specialized cars for local transportation, which we define as 100 kilometers or less, and a trip, and non-local, which is the longer distance uh, travel. So we've gone down uh, from 7.7 .7 trillion to 4.3 trillion. And electric vehicles, we have a fairly conservative uh, uptake uh, because we think that you know this, the, the first uh, generation of electric vehicles will be more expensive and uh, the ability to use them. Notice they're all in local uh, transportation. People are not going to be driving, you know, from here to uh, uh, Minsk by uh, electric vehicle, um, whereas they might potentially do it uh, in an internal combustion engine in, in that period. Uh, so we're we're saying a trillion kilometers for that. And uh, Richard, being the big PRT fan, got me to compromise on two uh, uh, hundred. Uh, 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 200 uh, million um, passenger kilometers uh, in PRT, personal rapid transit, pod cars. We can talk about those later if you'd like. There's one at Heathrow Airport that's uh, being deployed. Um, local public transit in the US currently carries uh, 50 billion um, passenger kilometers in um, uh, internal combustion buses, uh, diesel fuel and 40 billion in electric, uh, which is the rail systems of various sorts. And you notice that those, uh, the rail goes up uh, uh, exponentially. It goes up uh, by an order of magnitude to 400 billion. So a lot more 
um, electric uh, uh, local transport, not all of which would be rail. We're very big on electric trolley buses, which may be a, a, a species of a hybrid species to uh, uh, people in the UK, but there were electric uh, uh, buses. All it takes is two wires over the street, and if we need to rapidly expand our electric mobility capacity in urban areas, that will be a lot cheaper than putting in a lot of rail lines, although in high-volume cases, the rail uh, may be justified. So, um, and then um, a doubling even of internal combustion engine, even we're going to be adding, for those uh, who uh, are anti-diesel, uh, uh, um, and we're probably going to be adding a lot more diesel uh, in this scenario here, simply because it's much more efficient. That's the collectively managed part. It's still energy efficient to have a well-filled diesel bus compared to the cars that it would uh, replace. Um, briefly, on the intercity side, notice that uh, the uh, amount of flying, um, domestic flying, 950 billion passenger kilometers in 2007, um, goes down uh, by more than uh, half uh, to 400 uh, billion. Um, that's the end of cheap flying. That's the you know the discretionary flying part going uh, down, but being replaced by uh, intercity rail, which is almost negligible in the United States, um, and going up uh, again orders of magnitude uh, here over this uh, period. Notice that international air travel actually goes up because of increasing population and migration and patterns. There is room uh, to move from 330 billion to 400 uh, billion passenger kilometers and still save oil uh, in this. Again, not a forecast, not a model, simply a scenario which allows people to sort of think, well, you could do this. The main difference is that you move people out of uh, private vehicles uh, quickly. Um, and uh, uh, have um, a lot more collective transport in the short range and allow for the uptake of electric cars maybe a little more slowly than some of the uh, techno-optimists uh, are talking about. Um, so to do that... I think uh, we should move through to the questions. Yeah, I'll, uh, we're getting into the home stretch. To do that, the quick uh, uh, um, response is, well, do we need a lot more electricity? And the answer we did with a, a sort of an initial assessment was 40%. Um, and that doesn't mean 40% more power generation. It could mean a lot of efficiencies uh, freeing up some of that capacity. And tools. Well, I don't need to dwell on uh, at the end of road socialism, as I like to call it. Um, London is uh, led in uh, pricing road use, uh, and uh, I think there's much more room for it uh, in other places. Um, there's Singapore, Sweden, Stockholm uh, is in there as well, and uh, there's other examples. Um, this one is going, uh, the word condominium, Richard tells me, since he was born in England, doesn't translate well between North America and uh, the, the real English that's spoken uh, here. But um, the, the idea behind it uh, uh, is that we would have rights of way that have separately owned infrastructure sharing a common core. Some of it could be public, some of it could be private. If we're going to put high-speed rail, too, in, um, uh, where possible, why not expand uh, the existing corridors uh, that are uh, available? Um, that w the question you have to ask yourself is, will that be easier than blasting greenfield sites uh, through uh, uh, with all of the challenges that those face? And in many cases in North America, we have underused rail corridors, places that used to have three or four tracks that now only have one. This is, but, but railroads that are adamant, since they're privately owned, uh, that they don't want uh, socialist governments getting involved on their uh, rights of way. If there's a way to separate the ownership of the um, infrastructure assets along a shared right of way, that could help. 
What about stranded assets? My last substantive point. Um, you've got uh, an interesting balance, imbalance, I would say, here in the UK now. You have uh, Europe's busiest airport with five terminals and two runways. And uh, uh, I think given the energy future for cheap flying um, uh, declining, um, there's going to be a lot of empty terminal space uh, there. Um, so how do you enhance the use of this? Uh, well, uh, one example of many on continental Europe is uh, airports that have high-speed rail running through them. And uh, this is Lyon, where I worked for a year, uh, but uh, Paris, Amsterdam, uh, many other, Frankfurt to choose from. Uh, Hank Dittmar, of, uh, who now lives in London at the Princess uh, and works for the Princess Foundation uh, for the Environment, has dubbed these travel ports. The point being that uh, you use them to access either rail or air, or perhaps uh, have a mixed journey that connects from one mode to the other. Uh, Heathrow has the perfect uh, future excess terminal capacity and not enough runways to fill them uh, if you stick with two. Um, it is the perfect place to route uh, your next high-speed rail network uh, to turn uh, pump some of those terminals into future travel ports. So in conclusion, we're going to have transport revolutions one way or another, um, and it's often when we're not ready uh, for them. Uh, but in the hope that we can be ready, um, I think the, the, the more we're ready for them, uh, the more we prepare to, to sort of think differently and change uh, uh, technologies and organization, the better the chances of a happy uh, ending are. And uh, more information is available on, in the book and on the website. Thanks for your patience.